Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today I'm very honored to have as my guest, Mark LaFrance. We'll be talking music, travels, the business of music, the ups and downs of being a career entertainer, and we'll get some other insights as well about recording, jingles, working on major albums, and much more. Mark LaFrance has basically done it all, touring, recording, studio work, management, artist development, and much, much more. He has rubbed shoulders and worked with many of the premier musicians in the world. He remains a longtime member of Randy Bachman's projects, providing drums and vocals, and he does many other shows with his projects as well, Cease and Desist and Atlantic Crossing. With his record label Delinquent Records, Mark records and manages various recording acts and licenses music for many platforms worldwide. So for the people that aren't aware of your career, which I can't imagine there are any, but just can you give us a brief history? Well, as a, uh, I play, ended up, you know, played in cover bands. I'm originally from Winnipeg, so I had my first bands like Musical Odyssey, which is a popular band. And then out of that, I ended up in a band called Crocus, not to be confused with the one from Europe, but this was C-R-O-W-C-U-S-S that had two ex-Guess Who members in it. Yeah. And that was my first real recording act, and it did very well for four years. I lived out of a suitcase, and then <laughs> in 1980, I moved to Vancouver and started doing jingle sessions, very, which was ended up being very successful for me. And yeah. uh, working with the likes of Brian Adams, actually, was just getting started around that time. So we were doing, we found ourselves in the studio singing together, and and uh, it was it was kind of a, yeah. a fun and it thing. All kind of. It all yeah. kind of went from there, yeah. Yeah, and then I, you know, being a little mountain sound, all of a sudden you're doing jingles there, and Bob Rock and was uh, was kind of, you know, was getting his start with uh, engineering, and uh, you know, you'd be there doing a jingle, and Bob would go, "Hey, can you do sing on this? I'm doing Blue Murder. Can you sing on this album project?" So that, that's kind of how the album thing started which yeah, cool. ended up being lasting for some 15 years at Little Mountain Sound. Yeah. And then, you know, through that, all that, I did live work with various people and different artists and, of course, Cease and Assist. In 1964, like many people, uh, I, I was a young nine-year-old boy, and on the Ed Sullivan Show one February evening, the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. And for me, that was that's all it took. It was like, for me, it just was, that was it. And I went, you know, all these girls were screaming about this guy. I said, what a great job to have. (laughs) So uh, I got in it for the women first. No, no, of course. I love the music, but it seemed, you know, but it was just, and and every, of course, Winnipeg was like, was, uh, uh, was kind of like the Liverpool of North North America. We had bands all over the place. And of course, the Guess Who, then, you know, maybe a year or two later, the Guess Who, and yeah. in my hometown, I ended up having a hit with "Shaking All Over," and then they got yeah. and these eyes. So, and then you could see, you know, I'd be playing gigs, and Kurt Winter and and uh, Burton Cummings, these guys would show up at my gigs and stuff. So you just you just sort of thought it just sort of gave you that inspiration, and they, hey, kid, you're you sing well, yeah. you play well, you got to keep doing this, and it just sort of. It kept in reimbur- re- sort of continuing getting that positive energy to, yeah. to, to, to follow this up. So I got, I got the bug very early and never looked back. 
up-and-coming artists come up to me and they'll go, how did you do this? How did you get involved in the studio stuff, all of this stuff? I says, well, well I love it. And I say, well, I ask them, well, what, what do you want to do? And some of them say, I want to be rich and famous. And I just automatically say, hey, that's the wrong attitude, man. You have to love what you do because it's not going to be rich and famous stuff all the time. It's got to be about the music and the love of the music. If you don't have that that fire burning in you, you're not going to make it through the difficult times. And I know a lot of very talented guys that could have been hugely successful, but they didn't have that fire in their belly to yeah. want to want to do this, right? So you, it, you, it is the love of the music and the love of the business. I love the business. As, yeah. as many, uh, there's a lot of artists that don't like the music business side. Well, I'm one of the people that I, I like the challenge of, it's a complicated yeah. industry, but it, I love that part of it as well. You came to Vancouver and then you ended up playing, I guess you played with Trooper for a bit too, right? You, you I did. Got I together I, with Smitty and Ray? Well, actually before that, I was lucky enough to, I, I came to Vancouver and immediately started meeting, you know, doing session. Like two days after I moved to Vancouver, I started doing studio work at Little nice. Mountain and, and with other uh, advertising companies, which ended up turning into the album thing. But also I ended up uh, playing with Jerry Doucette in his band for a while when I first nice. moved here. And then I got asked to be in Trooper and I was actually in Trooper in Prism at the same time. So I, when I first moved here, I oh, was wow. very, I was very active and busy. And I remember flying to LA to do videos for the new Prism album and then coming back and doing a tour uh, across Canada with Trooper. So what a remarkable time. The number of times that I've, things have happened where it looks, oh, this is going to be the big one. This is, you know, that happened to me so many times, but yeah. it never quite turned out the way I thought. But out of that, something else incredible would come. So you just, you know, every experience feeds upon the next experience. So you ended up being in the studio with the, you know, where there was a real buzz there at Little Mountain, right, for many it was, years. It was amazing because, uh, and it kind of started with uh, uh, Loverboy because, yeah. Little Mountain Sound had an amazing, uh, it was an amazing studio. So you had, you know, people like Bob Rock and eventually Mike Fraser, who initially started, I think in 79, he was the janitor and he kind of worked yeah. his way through, through the ranks. So I'd be doing, in the early days of 1980, I'd be doing sessions and Bob Rock and, and uh, you know, Mike Fraser were just, you know, maybe running tape operators and they were learning through Roger Monk, who was the head engineer. And then lo and behold, they both took off and, Next thing you know, they were producing uh, big records along, along with Bruce Fairburn. So that, that yeah. just kind of developed. And Little Mountain ended up being this amazing place where you'd have jingles happening. You know, you'd be sitting in the lounge or in, in the waiting room to do a jingle session, and Bob Rock would walk by and go, "Hey, I'm doing an album next week, a band called Blue Murder. Do you think you could come and do some BGs? Sure." And then. I'd be doing a session with uh, the Blue Murder album, sitting in a lobby, and one of the guys from the, uh, Miles Ramsey, one of the guys from uh, GGRP, would come, hey, I'm doing a McDonald's ad uh, tomorrow. Are you available? So I'd, sometimes yeah. I'd just go hang out there and have a coffee, and I'd get a gig, you know? Yeah. <laughs> The other thing about Little Mountain, though, is they created this buzz, right? People were coming from around the world, like, so you could, Absolutely. You could attract the Bon Jovis and the Aerosmiths and, and these serious world-class bands. When you've got that buzz, it's sort of like a club. When you go to a club and everybody just goes there, it's full already, right? And Absolutely. So, you know, that was that was part of the hype of Little Mountain. So so tell me, what, what was your favorite experience, like, with bands or your favorite studio 
you know, experience? I don't know. It's so difficult because I've, you know, I, I think I'm up to somewhere around a thousand songs and over a hundred albums. <laughs> so it's kind of difficult for me to pick. Up. I mean, there's been yeah. so many, I, I, I really do feel blessed. I really have had so many amazing moments in studios, you know, all over the, all over the world. I had, I ended yeah. up with, with uh, Bruce Miller. I remember an experience in LA uh, recording at A&M Studios, which is yeah. was an amazing, and walking around the studio, and uh, uh, Burt Backrack was, you know, I remember being in a washroom with Burt Backrack and having a small chat, and, and yeah. Herb Albert, and so it's been, wow. around that time too, we were, uh, Bruce had me at the, at the Hyatt House, so he came to pick me up one day, and we're going down the elevator, and there's a short black fellow, in the elevator with us, we had a small little chat. He got out of the elevator, and I and, and Bruce said, "Do you know who that is?" I said, "No." He said, "That's Prince." I said, "Who's that?" <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "He's this guy. He just had a hit with Little Red Corvette or something like that." So, yeah. So as I ended up meeting uh, Prince in an elevator around that time That's for a moment cool. and minute in time, so it was. Yeah. So just I've had so many different experiences like that. It's hard. Brian Danter was in the successful recording act Tease in the late 1970s and left an indelible mark on the Canadian music scene before he left the music business in the early 80s for another life. The band has recently regrouped and they are resurrecting the Tease sound, which has delighted many of their fans. I was working uh, part-time in a, in a music store, a local music store, which is long gone. It was LRC Music. Yeah. And so what I would do, Dan, is as drummers and guitar players and all that came into the store i would kind of watch them and encourage them to play the instruments and i was auditioning musicians oh well, cool That's a neat idea <laughs> what, well what i didn't want to do was i didn't want to really um break into a lot of the the bands that were already playing in clubs and uh i i had the concert kind of mindset where they had more the two or three or four sets a night and it brought in a good paycheck and doing a lot of cover tunes. I always liked um, an interest in doing our own music. So yeah. I really picked uh, three other guys that um, were also different, yeah. but I felt that it would be a lot easier to work together with, uh, you know, with other musicians who had not been in the scene, but we had more of a, an opportunity to yeah. grow together. I wasn't originally a bass player. I, I always, always played guitar, even down through the years. I always, you know, I, I've always wrote on acoustic or electric. And uh, so anyways, I, I was doing a, uh, a gig. And yeah. what had happened is, you know, we had this whole week to play. And the uh, bass player uh, got really ill. And so there was two guitar players and the bass player, he wasn't there. So I just said, well, I'll take a shot at it. So from that point on, uh, I found bass, uh, you know, not to downplay it a lot, a little easier. And, um, so from that point on, uh, I just remained, uh, the bass player actually never came back. The picture I sent you with Gene Simmons, that was, uh, Kiss's first Canadian tour. And, Uh, anyways, we got that date and we went down to the London Gardens, which is tore down now. And we were the opening act for him. And we had like, they were really good with us. We had full uh, lights, full PA. When we were done our set, uh, 
we were actually by the, their uh, Kiss's manager. We were invited in to meet the guys, and they wanted to connect. And uh, so, if you look at that picture, Gene is not even wearing his boots yet. <laughs> he oh, just come out yeah. of the washroom. So I said to Gene, "Hey, we're both bass players. Mind if I get a few pictures?" So we took that, and then we got to meet with the rest of the group. Tease was not Tease at first. I resurrected the name Ontario, and okay. that's when we found out that we couldn't copyright the name. The manager dug deep on that, and uh, so we changed the name to Tease, and we rented uh, for about eight months, eight to nine months, the third floor of an abandoned factory with a big freight elevator, okay. and all we did for eight months is rehearse almost seven days a week Wow! with these guys. That's We live, breathe, yeah. eat everything, and then we started, how we got dates were, we, um, you know, we, we invited all the student counselor presidents to our rehearsal hall we had all of our lights all of our stage gear and we did like a 20 minute set for all of them so oh. initially that guy, that night we sewed up almost all the high schools in windsor and essex county <laughs> when they asked us hey do you guys have we're going to the studio do you have any original songs we had none oh Wow. We had none. So uh, I was really the only one at the time who had had experience in writing. So we went to work for s- several weeks. I wrote, uh, I think, eight eight of the ten songs that were on the first album, and they were really oh, cool. in raw form. It was not doctored like the way you hear it. There no. was very, very, I mean, very few overdubs. We went in one day. We were there the whole day into the evening and recorded the album, then went back to mix it. That was it. So once you recorded that, then what kind of what kind of response did you get? You got some airplay, and you got some people saying, "Hey, these guys are these people." Started taking you seriously. Yeah. Well, what happened was we um, we had moved to Toronto. Uh, I mean, everything just happened so fast, yeah. and we we had to prepare. I had to leave my job at the uh, music store, leave my apartment on the waterfront. I mean, everything, and uh, so we moved all, and we stayed in the. Uh, road manager's house with him and his wife and his two kids we were all in the basement so we were kind of all shacked up there and then we used part of the basement we had our gear up to rehearse all the time yeah and so and then really quick we got airplay on chum radio all of a sudden they were flooded with phone calls and who is this new band and that really really helped the air uh the airplay then it started you know getting picked up you know out west and out east um and things just went like that so we went and we started playing a lot of high schools and small concert venues we would go out and not actually we just do our own shows so you got this big break to do your tour of japan and you were just mobbed i guess like the beatles right Mm -hmm. well we we were just as shocked you know we had just finished on the loose and uh, had released it and everything and uh was the uh, first album yeah. that really uh, sold the Japanese market uh, for us. Mm-hmm. So, so when we went there, we were part of uh, much as I can remember, Dan, we were part of like a package deal. Uh, they had a couple people from England, from America, and we were the Canadian group going over. Yeah. So we just happened to get a, a really great deal. And we never, we never realized from the time we arrived at the airport you know, we had all these Tease fans already waiting for us with dolls and flowers. And <laughs> and then in the limousine, like, we were looking at one another and we were just like, what? That's neat. They, we're just Canadians. They, we, 
they can't know us this much. You know? <laughs> so and we went to the hotel and there's all these cars that followed the limousines back to the hotel wow. and they had to have security because, you know, they wanted to sneak into the hotel and everything. Yeah. And so the whole time we were there, I mean, they just really Japan, and I'm sure they did that for the other groups, just rolled out the red, red carpet. The band split up. You guys, uh, mm-hmm. you guys just got frustrated and you kind of went your way. And I was curious about why that happened. And, and, you know, it was partly to do with the fact that you wanted to take a different direction in life and, and yeah. some, some of the frustrations in the business. I mean, the, the music business is, is a really a messed up business for yeah. any of us that have been in it for any length of time mm-hmm. as I have as well. So, so tell me about that a little bit. This is a part I've actually now I, I kind of really hope for is I can be really transparent without uh, I definitely want to not come across as you know uh, I, I get sometimes oh you're very religious yeah right yeah <laughs> and uh, I know what they mean by that but uh, you know I was raised in a, a really good sound Christian home yeah you know uh, always went to church and everything and uh, you know the whole thing. Um, in that, when you're at that caliber of music, it's that, uh, I mean, the drugs, um, I can say it, the, the women and everything, it's all there so much. And, yeah. you know, it just, years of it, like I wanted to play music. I love the guys in the band. I love the studio. I just didn't like all the other stuff that comes with it behind the scenes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, before you know it, you're actually veering off kind of what your own convictions are and that's you know without any disrespect to the band member it was my own journey and I really came to a point Dan where I had lost who I really was like now I have fame you know I have possessions I have money I have a house in Montreal I have a a car whenever I want it and it's just but it was not satisfying you know, I would start looking at artists that had been around for many, many years, made it big. Yeah. And now all their earnings and everything, you know, they've kind of wasted their life in, in uh, you know, drugs and drinking and everything, that lifestyle. But now they want to hold on to their position. Yeah. And it's very few that are able to do it. And so they end up at the end of their life when should be the best years of their life with family and friends and they end up penniless yeah. and broken and their bodies are worn out. And, uh, I really, really looked at that. So I, I've kind of felt like, uh, I'm never going to find out, uh, who I am and where I fit until I just pull away. We weren't practicing that weekend and I'd come out on the front porch and I picked up this devotional and I t- I'll never forget it. It uh, was November 11th. I just opened the book and I read it. It said, what my obedience costs other people. And it was just one page. And I read it. And Dan, it, it really pricked my heart. And I realized whatever I do in life is always going to have an effect on other people. So I just decided um, uh, we, weren't, we weren't leaving for that tour for a while. I said, I want to go home. So I got on a train, came home, and uh, I just decided that night I went to church. I realized I'd never been baptized, so I got baptized on that Sunday. I actually, on the Monday, I called up all of the band members. I called my record company and everything. I just said, uh, you know what? Uh, I need some time off. 
Craig Zerba is perhaps not a household name across Canada, but is an icon of the Vancouver music scene and someone I'm proud to call a friend. He has basically done it all from touring, recording, producing, management, artist development, and much more. You were a keyboard player primarily, I assume. You took piano lessons when you were a kid. and then Yeah. And then uh, over the... over time, I did pick up guitar and harmonica and things yeah. like that, and I can play you know some basic grooves on drums and things like that. And, and a lot of that is when you're a producer, you have to know the language to speak to a drummer. So yeah. I have to know some of the the vocabulary, uh, you know what a flam is and things like that. It would not not normally come up in a piano context. So, I mean, I wish I wish I would have taken up guitar at seven years old too, just <laughs> because the more you play, like you talk about making a career out of it the more instruments you play the more work you can you can get. yeah i don't know if this happened to you but in music sometimes you feel your parents aren't accepting this career choice because it is a form of self-employment you don't know where the check next check is coming from you don't know if the phone's gonna stop right but oddly when i worked with tom jones all of a sudden I felt an acceptance from my parents because they could put it into context with their friends and they could say, Oh, Craig's working with Tom Jones. And they, they all yeah. understood that. And they all knew who Tom Jones was. If I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going on tour with Trooper, they might not have known, you know, who that is or, or yeah. you know, Brian Adams in the seventies, but Tom Jones was at that moment where you, you kind of go, Oh, I, I guess, yeah, I guess <laughs> I'm a professional now. Well, tell me about that. How did that happen? Well, that was in the 80s when I did a lot of work as a synthesizer programmer. Now, yeah. that's that's something that just doesn't even happen anymore. Now, you just you open up GarageBand and you, you can have horns and strings. But in the, the early 80s, late 70s, you know, I had a synthesizer and I had to cr- create from waveforms strings or horns and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, I was working with a keyboard player named Henri Lorio, and um, I was his synth programmer. And he was hired to work with the, on the Tom Jones TV show. And then also while he was in Vancouver shooting the TV show, he did an album. So okay. that's how I got involved there. You said you worked with Brian Adams and stuff too. Yeah. Right? I, he, um, oh, I met him. With, he was visiting one of, the, uh, uh, one of the members of SLAN. And he needed a ride home. And I said, oh, I'll give you a ride home. And uh, we started talking. And he said, well, do you want to do some writing? I'm like, yeah, sure, absolutely. He goes come to my house nine o'clock tomorrow morning. I'll have breakfast made. I'll have a pot of tea and we can do it. And I thought, wow, that's kind of like a real job. That's, yeah. th- this is serious, right? Because you know, the, the club scene back and then you, you'd, you'd play till two in the morning. You'd go back to the band house, bringing some patrons with you yeah. and you know, you, they drink till six in the morning and then sleep till three or four in the afternoon and repeat. Yeah. And that just didn't feel like, I just felt like I was spinning my me- wheels musically and I wanted to take things to the next level. And w- with Brian, he was so inspiring. His work ethic, he was just unstoppable. So he was in Sweeney Todd at the time. I was yep. in the band, Mr. Natural. And we said, let's make a pact. Let's like give our notice the same day. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we did that. We got on the phone that night. Did you do it? Yeah. Did you quit your band? Yeah, I quit. You know, he quit Sweeney Todd. And, um, and then I did a big shift from getting out of the clubs to that's when I got into... Um, session work and playing on jingles and film scores and things like that. Yeah. So I took a break from live gigging for, for, you know, quite a while. Yeah. Okay. So did you have your own studio then or were you just doing, working it through other studios? I had a Fostex eight track okay. and Brian and I would cut demos oh, cool. on that. It was in my, my parents' basement yeah. and a little mixing board. And, uh, we, you know, we got a major record deal from the, from the demos on that machine. Andre Kunkel and I got together to write songs. We just, as, as songwriting partners. And 
the, we didn't have the technology that you have today. So if you wanted a drummer to play on your demo, you had to hire a drummer. But we created this cooperative where, you know, if you play drums on my song, I'll play keyboards on the song that you wrote. Nice. And and um, so we realized we had drums, bass, guitar, keys. And um, then we had a couple dozen songs. And we thought, hey, it dawned on us, you know what? We've got a band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a band with songs. So then we sought out management. But it was it was pretty much the opposite to how most bands come together yeah. well what a cool story though you kind of kind of fell together for a mutual interest and then you yeah. you obviously put some tunes together and then i guess you you had a was it a much music contest that you were entered in well we um we we sought out a manager and we we had a good match with uh brian wadsworth who used to uh work with bruce right. allen and he started his own management company and his secretary alexa deans entered uh, a video that we had done with a friend of ours um who went to BCIT and took film and television. He did this video for $100. Now, you know, you could do a video for nothing now with your iPhone, but those were in the days where you had to buy film stock. Mm. Um, and so $100 was quite remarkable to do a the video. The film would have cost more than that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, you know what? He, he got this old black and white film that BCTV used to have for their news mm. footage. You know, when they used to say, film at 11? Yeah. You know, they called in every kind of favor and got got uh, as many freebies as we can. So she entered in, us into this constant test. Uh, it was uh, Video Culture Can. It was sponsored by Heinz Heinz oh. Ketchup. So Heinz Ketchup was very pivotal in our, <laughs> in our launch. So we we entered this contest, and they they showed the winners at some kind of gala banquet in in Toronto, and all labels and publishers were there. They were like, who are these guys? This, this video has got some kind of mojo yeah. to it. We, we like it. And we ended up signing with CBS Publishing Canada. What was the biggest single that was that one? I th- just chart wise, I think she trusted me. Yeah. Well, that's neat. I mean, I mean, that must've been a pretty exciting time for you guys, right? I mean, you're, you're going to New York, you're going to LA, you're Oh yeah, and Skunk was introducing uh, introducing us to Michael McDonald, and cool. um, it was yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, limousines, much music, that kind of thing. <laughs> it was you know, we had this taste of it, and uh, yeah. So you just just about made it, and but you had a good ride, I guess, for the for the short lived time. Well, I'll, I'll just keep, leave you with one other yeah. An- yeah. anecdote about our our little peak there. Um, we were in Toronto doing a promo tour. And, you know, limousines picked us up at the nice hotel and were driving us to the, the Much Music City TV building for our video interview. And we're, we're approaching the building and there are hundreds and hundreds of girls lined up around the corner. <laughs> and our single had been out for a month or so. And we're thinking, this is really great. Our single's been, only been out for a month and, the, you know, Much Music had been playing our video. And we have hundreds of teenage girls waiting to, to see us, apparently. So we go in the building and we get greeted at reception and we're being ushered in. And we said, so those, the crowd outside, is that for us? And they go, oh, no, 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 no. We've got the Norwegian band, AHA, coming in today. And they're... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so again, it's one of those little, don't, don't get too full of yourself because, yeah, you know, exactly. it's peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. When, when the agent thing collapsed, the drummer quit, the guitar player quit, um, Rick Livingstone, the singer quit. So, you know, we, we took certain inspiration from Genesis, you know, Peter Gabriel yeah. was so significant in that band quit and they were left and the, and the Steve Hackett, the guitar player quit and they were left with three and they had an, yeah. they put out an album and then there were three and they, they, you know, they went on to have way bigger success. 
So Andre and I uh, enlisted uh, Troy Reed on vocals and Tom Lang. And Troy is also a, a great drummer. Yeah. So we carried on uh, with, with Tom Lang on guitar, who's a great you know singer, writer. He had written some material for April Wine. And so we had this, this new version of Agent. Just keep, keep, you know, trying to be the Energizer Bunny. Well, you said you had a gold album in the Philippines. Tell me that story. That, yeah, that well, that's kind of interesting. Um, you never know where your work's going to come from. And I don't know how this lady got a hold of me. I, I had an ad in the, the Georgia Strait, the arts and entertainment paper. And she phoned me up. She was looking for a producer to do some, some work. And um, she lived like a five-minute walk away from me when I yeah. had my studio in Burnaby. And she was really nice, uh, this lady named Joey Albert. And we did some writing together. And one of these singles went had gold status in the Philippines. And I never really thought much about it, you know, just enjo- really enjoyed it. And it was creative and, and, and she was very, very nice. And then I would talk to some Filipino people, like, you know, someone who's cutting my hair or whatever. I said, have you heard of Joey Albert? Like, yeah, <laughs> of course. She's like, she's like huge in the Philippines. I think she was an actor and... She was like the Celine Dion of the Philippines. And wow. I had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea. In terms of recording, you've probably made most of your money doing jingles, right? I've sang a few jingles for you and stuff and over the um, years. And... Yeah. Well, it was when I started my own jingle company okay. that I, I probably did the best because you could play a jingle and make X amount of money or write the jingle and produce it yourself and make 10 times that. Yes. I got you. So how do you think the music business has changed over the last 50 years? Like just sort of broadly speaking from the 30,000 feet. Well, uh, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, <laughs> the, the power is still held by the power brokers. You know, if you really want to, you know, be yeah. an edge here and you need great management. Um, it's, you know, I think the, you have to look at the internet and what that's done. Um, yeah, that's much. Like my studio used to be really, really busy with acts doing CDs and they'd spend 15000 producing a CD, sell them or 10,000, sell them for $15 each, press a thousand. And that's 5,000 profit. Yeah. Now no one's selling CDs. No one's buying them off the stage. So the internet's really yeah. hurt that. Um, I still, you know, look at where, where the revenue streams are. I still um, release music for film and television, like um, CSI, you know, the, the biggest d- d- TV drama in the States, uh, I've had the music on nice. uh, Kevin Bacon city, a uh, song called city on the, the hill. Um, I've got music in that. So I, yeah. that doesn't pay as much as it used to, but it's still, you know, I recommend people that, that if you're creating music, also pitch it to film and television. Christopher Ward was uh, known as a popular much music VJ and, and was then a major part of the Atlanta miles hit album in 1989. He's basically done it all touring, recording, producing, and much, much more which we'll get into as we have our conversation. So thanks for joining me today, Christopher. How are you? Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Dan. I've got just gone from vintage to antique, though, over the course of this intro. <laughs> but thank you for the kind of words. Well, you know, we always say, if, if you don't like it, it's dated. If you like it, it's retro. So you're retro. <laughs> All right, I'm retro. I'm, I'm rolling with it now. <laughs> me too. Your first sort of foray into the biz was college radio. Yeah, I was going to Trent University, and my friend Stephen Stone and I, along with um, a guy named Peter Northrop at uh, Trent, started the campus radio station, and that was so much fun. From that, I got hired to be the all-night DJ at uh, CKBT in Peterborough, Ontario, and uh, I went to school during the day, so you can imagine which of those two things suffered the most. 
But what struck me then is how did you jump from that to recording? You obviously started recording music and then you had your album, like the spark of desire and you got a Warner brothers deal and, and that didn't just fall out of the sky. How did, how did you make that transition? Well, I don't even know that it was a transition. I mean, I was, you know, playing the guitar from, you know, later on in high school into my days at Trent and, um, I was always fascinated with songwriting. I was writing poetry and doing those kind of things that you do when, you, when you're getting started. Um, and radio was just yeah. something that I fell into because, you know, if you want to hear pop tunes, you listen to the radio. And, you you know, the, I remember the radio guys when I was a kid growing up in Toronto, I mean, on Chum AM, they were like the purveyors of this stuff that I was craving. It was like teenage heroin, you know. To getting to hear yeah. about the latest happening from the Beatles or Bob Dylan or the Rolling Stones or the Kinks, you know. And so radio was important. And so when I had a chance to, to work in radio while I was going to college, that just seemed like a perfect uh, combination. But all along, really, Dan, I was a songwriter and an artist. Why didn't you continue down that road? I mean, you were you had the modicum of success, right? I mean, you had some play i don't know how big it was in the states but those i heard those songs lots of times and so why didn't you continue down that road you know i did what countless artists before me have done they, they changed their mind about what they wanted to do creatively i mean i grew up playing rock and roll and sort of folk rock i suppose would be the marriage of stuff that i did and um i moved it in that direction and that wasn't how they saw me they saw me as like a oh i don't know like a sean cassidy or something you know like a teen star and well, uh, i, I yeah. didn't want so you're so multifaceted. It's, it's great to to read some of the stuff that you did, but you did you got into TV, right? You were doing TV appearances and and the City Limits show. I guess the the DJ thing. You sort of combined everything as a musician and an entertainer and a and a obviously a, a program host. And you did City Limits, and that turned into much music. Yeah, that you're right. It was a, it was really a confluence of different experiences. I mean, right before City Limits came along, I had been in the Second City Touring Company, um, doing you know improvisational comedy, not well, but I did it. Um, and <laughs> you know, I mean, I'd, I'd hosted a kids show on CBC uh, back in the late '70s, right around the time that those records came out, like maybe Your Heart Once in a Long Time, and. So I'd done some yeah. TV work and, you know, it was a kid's show. So there were interviews, but they were with children. <laughs> but, you know, it was a lot of fun and great experience. Um, so then, you know, combining all of that, plus just an overall love of music and the opportunity to do City Limits was pretty amazing. It was like, you know, John Martin, the, the boss there said, well, first of all, because I wasn't going to do it. I didn't want to do it. I was focused on my music. And he said, well, you need the money, don't you? I went, well, yeah. <laughs> now that you mention it <laughs> and he said okay yeah <laughs> and you can do anything you want it's like oh creative freedom oh, hmm, that's very go. appealing <laughs> yeah. so that was the magic combination by which he tricked me into becoming the first vj i mean actually in terms of much the first vjs were myself and uh jd roberts who's now john roberts yeah. on fox news so well, that's cool. And then, so I wanted to ask you about the professional songwriting and writing hit songs is, is everyone's goal. That's a professional songwriter and, and things like specific tunes for specific artists and, and whatnot. So I was going to ask you about that. You know, you've, you've done some of that. Uh, do you just write songs and kind of put them out there or do you write for specific people or maybe a combination? It's the combination plate on that for sure. Um, yeah. It depends what your access is. If you're working with the artist, 
that's always the best situation because you get to spend time with them and get a better sense of what their identity is as an artist and what they're capable of singing, what would be believable coming out of their mouths. And you get a much yeah. better chance of getting your song on the record if you do that. Now, I've also written songs sometimes for an artist and they've ended up in somebody else's hands because the original artist didn't want it and it's done well. I mean, it's like yeah. there's no real exact formula for, um, you know, for how you, how you go about it. But, you know, you just seek out what opportunities you can and try to write the best song you can. I mean, when I think about Black Velvet, it's like it's not a prototypical hit song. I mean, the stuff that was out and happening in those days was, you know, like Huey Lewis and the News and Bon Jovi and that kind of stuff. And, um, I mean, Atlanta, like, it was a blues song. It didn't really fit in with, with anything that was on the radio. Um, yeah. But we had, you know, a good record company. And some people at the label that really believed in her. She had a good manager in the U.S. in Danny Goldberg, and um, mm-hmm. she looked like a million bucks when she hit the stage. And she had a great band. It's like you just need everything to fit together magically. It's really a miracle that there's ever such a thing as a hit song. And I wanted to ask you what what happened with Alana Miles' career because uh, one day you're you're not known, and the next day you're it's a household word. Everybody knows who Alana Miles is, and that's got to be the ultimate springboard for having a, a long career and, and a longevity in your career. So, what do you think happened with that? I don't agree with the premise of the question. I think, Dan, okay. to be honest, yeah, I think um, I mean a hit song is uh, you know it's a once in a blue moon thing that happens. Yeah. But because it happens, it's not necessarily the precursor to a long career. In fact, in many ways, people would say the opposite is true. If you start your career reasonably humbly, maybe you're with an independent label and you're able to sell, you know, pick a number of of records or streams or whatever, and then you slowly build and you tour and you develop a fan base and they, they stay with you and they grow with you and... Um, then something happens that you know a big band sees you and they take you on tour and then suddenly oh more people know about you and it's the long slow growth that often I think is the formula for uh, a really really durable career I think the people that suffer oftentimes are the ones that have a song that is so big that it's virtually impossible to to top it the next time around Um, it's just not a realistic expectation that a person would have a second or third black velvet up their sleeves. And, you know, her second album sold a few hundred thousand copies and was considered a failure. Hmm. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, it's, yeah, like, cause that's not, still pretty neither decent, is it right? musically a failure or commercially a failure in any sense yeah. of the word. But yeah. by contrast to the first one, I mean, in Canada, that first album sold 1.2 million copies. She was the first woman to have a diamond record. And, yeah. um, you know, it was just, a, it was a, an absolute once in a lifetime phenomenon. Well, you know, I mean, I hadn't made a record in 30 years, so it wasn't like I have any kind of pattern yeah. to rely on. And in many ways, it was kind of a whimsical yeah. choice. It was just me writing a bunch of songs and then thinking, well, what am I going to do with these songs? They feel kind of different than other stuff that I've written for artists. And I thought, well, you know what? And actually, yeah, let's blame Mark Jordan because he did at one point say to me, Chris, you got to make a record, man. So I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, nice. And, yeah. Um, and and I knew what he was saying. He said, do it for your daughter, which was a sweet thing for him to say. Yeah. And, um, and I thought, okay, you know what? Why not? 
So I just rounded up the best talent I could find, best musicians. Yeah. Nobody was working. Nobody was touring, so everybody was available. A couple of collaborators, Aaron Chattervedi and Luke McMaster, songwriters and producers. And yeah. the three of us just sat down and mapped it out. We went in the studio with these great players. Um, we recorded it live off the floor. We did 13 tracks in four days. And, nice. you know, we did a bunch of overdubbing and took our time with that. Yeah, but, of course. You yeah. know, the spirit of it was live and loose and, and just yeah. get it while you can. And the players learned the songs in the studio the day we recorded them. It was a blast yeah. doing it. And so, yeah. you know, I didn't, I didn't worry. I didn't try to compare it to anything. I wasn't even thinking, honestly, about the commercial aspects of it. I just wanted to do something that was creatively the best quality work that I could possibly do. And I wanted to put some songs out that reflected a man of a certain age and at a, you know, I mean, there's not a lot of music made for people of our generation anymore. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can go back to your old Crosby, Stills, Nash records if you want, but, you know, to hear yeah. new music that reflects, you know, people of our age. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's the Bob Dylans and Neil Young's and, and, you know, people like that are still going strong. Um, that that was that was kind of my goal in doing so. So I didn't really worry about you know how I was going to promote it. I mean, you know, I stumbled along with social media like anybody, trying to find yeah. a way to do it and just try to be authentic and talk to people and tell them what I'm doing and why and see if they like it. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes. Revealing Chats with Canada's Retro Music Makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare.